You're listening to Theology for the Rest of Us. You've got tough questions. We'll try to give you easy answers. Now, here's your host, Kenny Ortiz. Hello and welcome in. Welcome. I'm Kenny Ortiz and this is Theology for the Rest of Us, recording from the great metropolis of Orlando, Florida, in the backyard of the great Mickey Mouse himself. Thank you so much for taking a few minutes out to listen to this episode of the podcast. This is episode 145. I'm going to be answering a very important question. How do we know that the Bible hasn't been changed over the course of the centuries? There are very few questions uh, that I think I've addressed that are as important as this one. I've been asked this many times by young believers that are inquiring, and typically it's a genuine inquiry. Like, how do we know we can actually trust this thing? Like, how do we know it hasn't been edited or manipulated or, you know, or or change over the course of the years? It's a great question that every believer ought to be asking. Uh, This topic is also often brought up by people that are not necessarily genuinely inquiring, but are seeking to attack the scriptures. They want to attack the the authority and credibility of the scriptures, you know, uh, whether they be liberal theologians or secular progressives, or they be you know, atheists that are that are anti-gospel and that are looking to critique the Bible and, and again undermine its credibility. You know, they'll they'll say things like the Bible is nothing more than this massive game of telephone. You know, these these stories and legends have been passed down over the centuries, and the stories have been changed and they've been edited, and the stories have been amplified. And for political purposes, certain things have been included or excluded. You know, to oppress a particular group of people. And this idea that. The, that the historical accounts of the scriptures can't be trusted because these stories have been changed as they were passed down you know, throughout the centuries. So I do think this is a very important topic to, to tackle and to dive into both uh, for the confidence of the believer so that you can know that the scripture is trustworthy and this is important to address so that we can have a quality response to give to those who would seek to attack the scripture. It is appropriate for us to be prepared to give a response to why we trust the Bible. Before we dive into the content for this episode, I'll give you a quick reminder about the importance of making sure that you are subscribed to the podcast. This is really important. I know many of you are already subscribed. Thank you very much. But if you just stumbled across the podcast on social media or some other platform and you are not subscribed, I want to encourage you to do so as soon as possible. Head on over to your favorite podcasting app, whether that's iTunes, Podcast Addict, uh, Stitcher, TuneIn Radio, Google Play, Spreaker, whatever. Look up the podcast. Hit that subscribe button. It guarantees you never miss an episode because when you're subscribed, every episode gets delivered directly to your device. It's also a big help to the show because the more subscriptions we have, the further up search rankings we will appear in the in the directories, and the more people that will find the show, the more people that will be able to reach. So your subscription is a big help. Make sure you hit that subscribe button. Thank you in advance. All right, let's dive into the question at hand. How do we know the Bible hasn't been changed? Uh, quite frankly, this is actually a relatively easy question to answer. There is a, a segment of people uh, that, that are supposed scholars that are attacking the scriptures, saying that we can't trust it, it's been changed, people like Bart Ehrman and others like him. Um, but quite frankly, with all due respect, in many cases, those guys are being intellectually dishonest. Like Sometimes they're just flat out lying. But in most cases, it's these guys are so biased. They have their own anti-God uh, bias and subjectivity for whatever personal reasons they are anti-God, that they can't actually objectively and rationally examine the evidence. Because when you do honestly and objectively 
examine the evidence, it becomes abundantly clear that the Bible has not been changed. And I'm going to prove that to you in just a moment. The scriptures have not been altered. They've not been manipulated whatsoever. Now listen, you don't have to embrace the word of the, the Bible as the word of God in order to embrace the fact that they are authentic. When I say they're authentic, I mean that they haven't been changed. Like When we say that the Apostle Paul wrote the letter to the Colossians, we know that he wrote a letter. He put pen to paper. He sent that letter to uh, the the church of the Colossian people, they held on to that letter, and that letter has been preserved 2,000 years, and it hasn't been changed. It is authentic. It was actually written by the Apostle Paul, and the letters that we have in front of us today, that the words that we have today in the Bible are the same words that he wrote 2,000 years ago. We know that to be true. You can believe that and embrace that to be true without necessarily embracing the Bible as the authoritative word of God. Like you may reject the Bible as the word of God, as being inspired by the Holy Spirit, by being as being authoritative or inerrant or infallible. You can reject the Bible as that, but yet still embrace the fact that it's it is authentic. In fact, it's a matter of fact and a matter of history that the Bible is indeed authentic, that it has not been edited or manipulated in, in any way whatsoever. Now, in a future episode, I promise we will deal with the authority inspiration of Scripture. Like, how do we know that it was indeed inspired by the Holy Spirit and not just written by human beings? Like, how do we know these words are indeed from God? I promise we will tackle that thoroughly in future episodes. In this episode, I'm going to focus specifically on how do we know that the words haven't actually changed over the course of time? And the reality is, this is a very easy question to answer uh, because we do this not just with the Bible. We do this with all with, with all, all sorts of different books um, from antiquity. Lots of different writings uh, are, are examined by these things we call manuscripts. Now, if you've been around a North American church for any length of time, you've probably heard the word manuscripts. Maybe you, you've heard me mention it in, in previous episodes. Uh, several of our previous podcasts, uh, or excuse me, interview guests have mentioned manuscripts in the, in the past. Maybe your pastors mentioned it. Maybe a, an apologist or an evangelist came to your church and mentioned it. Uh, maybe you read it in a book. Like At some point, if you've been around the church any length of time, you've probably heard the term manuscripts. And, and that is how we know that the Bible hasn't been changed. And it's not just the Bible. That, again, not the Bible isn't the only book that we compare manuscripts for. Uh, we do this with all sorts of books and pieces of literature from antiquity. Let me, let me put this in contemporary terms because I want to make sure we're all on the same page. We can all fully grasp this. Uh, in the previous episode, in episode 144, I, st- I talked about the compilation of the, of the Bible. And in the, in the beginning portion of that episode, I kind of told this kind of funny, silly narrative, uh, contemporary narrative of what it might have been like uh, for, you know, for the scriptures to, to be circulated in contemporary terms. And I want to do the same here in this episode just for the sake of, uh, for the sake of making it easy for all of us to grasp. Uh, let's pretend that I write a letter to a buddy of mine living in Pennsylvania, right? I'm like, man, my buddy Billy living in Philly needs to know all these really good stuff. And I live here in Orlando, Florida. And I'm like, hey, I want Billy to know all this good stuff. So I write him a letter. It's four pages long. And I write him a a handwritten letter and I mail it to him. And then Billy has this. But before I mail it to him, I make a copy. So I've got a copy of it. And then Billy gets it and Billy reads it and Billy writes me a letter back. And he's like, Kenny, that was a great letter. You need to make sure as many people as possible can read what you shared with me because it's so good. And I'm like, man, Billy, you're right. And so I make another copy and I make two or three more copies of it because I have the original still, right? And so 
I, um, I then send a copy to my buddy Jimmy in Louisiana. And then I send a copy to another friend of mine living in Miami. And I send another one to a buddy of mine in Atlanta. And I, I start sending copies to all my friends like, dude, this letter is good. I think you need to read this. And then let's say my friends get the letter and they're like, man, this is really good stuff. We should share this. So let's say my buddy Jimmy in Louisiana makes 10 copies of it. And he starts spreading it around to his friends that live in Louisiana throughout different parts. And let's say a buddy of his that lives in Louisiana has a copy of it. And his buddy's in the military and he moves to Japan. And he takes a copy with him. And he thinks it's so good, he, start making, sorry, he starts making copies in Japan. And he starts spreading them around, right? And, his, and so he gives it to a bunch of his buddies at the army base or the military base there in Japan. And then one of his buddies who's from Montana gets discharged from the military and he goes home to Montana and takes a copy of the letter with him and he shares it with some of his buddies and he and they start making copies and let's say everywhere where people get a copy of this letter they make copies of it and they start circulating those copies all around they start getting you know passed around now over the course of time is it possible that some people as they're making copies particularly if they're making handwritten copies right they're making copies hand by hand that they might misspell a word Absolutely, that's possible, right? Is it plausible that over the course of time, they may accidentally skip a word? Well, absolutely, that's possible, right? So in, in whatever copy they make, there may be a, a word uh, missing. Is it plausible that some of my boys in Philly are eating Philly cheesesteaks while they're making copies, and they take a big bite into a delicious Philly cheesesteak, and the, the melted yellow cheese whiz drips onto the page, right, and it smears the ink, and they try to wipe it off, but they, they can't quite get it, and it smears the ink on the pages. And now that particular copy has lost whatever words where the cheese fell on the page. Is that possible? Of course it's possible. So how then could we possibly figure out what was the authentic version? How do we know what was in the original letter that I first wrote to my friend Billy in Philly? How do we find that out? Well, here's how you would do it. Let's say you're 100 years in the future. Fast forward to the year 2116. And you have all these letters in front of you from different locations. Now, if you only have two copies in front of you, let's say you find a copy in Indiana and you find another copy in Toronto and you have these two copies in front of you, and they don't perfectly match. They match about 98%, but there's about 2% that doesn't quite match. How do you know what was actually you know, in those gaps that you're missing? Well, if you only have two copies, you can't. There's no way of knowing. It's impossible. Let's say you have three copies, and you're comparing and all three are different. Could you find out what's... You still couldn't quite know. The only way you would be able to tell is if you have a massive amount, or you have a, a, at least a, a large amount that match. So let's say you don't have two or three copies. Let's say you have 20 manuscripts, right? We're fast forwarding into the year 2116 and people discover they find they find 20 manuscripts, 20 different locations around the globe of this letter. And they take the 20 and they put them in front of them and on a table and they look at the 20 of them and say, okay, where do they match? Oh, well, 98% of all the words in these 20 letters match. Well, then that, we must be, that must be authentic. Like those 98%, they match. Like, the only, like, there's no possible way that an entire letter could be changed uh, over the course of time that matches, right? If you find a copy in Toronto and you find a copy in Indiana and they 98% match, well, then those 98%, that is what was written by the original authors. Like you can, you, you can piece it together like a detective kind of pieces together the clues, except when you have a multitude of manuscripts, piecing together the clues is actually really, really easy. Now, then you have a few spots where they don't match quite. So you go, okay, what's th this particular one doesn't match. But you look at the 20 copies and go, well, 15 out of the 20 
all use this word right here in this spot, but these five over here don't. Well, chances are these five are wrong and these 15 are right. And then you go, okay, what about this name spelling over here? Uh, 18 of the manuscripts spell it this way and these two manuscripts spell it this way. Well, which one's probably right? Well, probably, probably those 18. And this is what scholars do. They collect uh, manuscripts and copies of manuscripts from all different types of works from antiquity and they piece them together, almost like, like a detective taking all these manuscripts and copies of manuscripts and reconstructing what the original author actually wrote. And we do this with a variety of different works, not just the Bible. We do this with a variety of different works from antiquity, whether it be works of history, whether they be works of classic literature or Greek philosophy or whatever. We reconstruct what was originally written by piecing together by comparing and examining all of the manuscripts and copies of manuscripts that we have discovered you know, throughout the ages. One other really important element to make sure we mention is that whenever scholars and archaeologists are examining these copies of copies, right, because that's ultimately what manuscripts are, they are copies of copies, whenever they are examining them, they are also considering the time that has elapsed from the time of the original writing until the earliest manuscript that we have available. Let's go back to my silly contemporary example just to make sense of this. Um, so, you know, in, in, my, in my story, I wrote a letter in Orlando, Florida in 2016, and I sent a copy to my buddy in Philly. I sent another copy to my buddy in Louisiana, and they start making copies of, that, of those letters, and, and they start distributing those, and then other people in those areas start making copies of copies and distribute them, and, and they get sent all over the place, and they get circulated, and other people start making copies of copies. Now, Let's fast forward several centuries and there's archaeologists that are looking back on these letters that have been found. If they find one that they can date back to, let's say, 2036, they would say, okay, the original was written in 2016. We don't have the original available to us, but we have this copy of a copy from 2036. Okay, that's only 20 years of time you know, of, of potential mistakes to be made. It's, it's probably closer to the original. It's less likely that a bunch of mistakes were made than if we compare it, let's say, to a copy they find from the year 2116, 100 years from now, right? Let's say they have two copies of copies, and one is from the year 2036, and one is from the year 2116. One is 30 years after the original. One is 100 years after the original. In many cases, what scholars and archaeologists do as they're examining the the manuscripts, they will often give more credence to the ones that are earlier, the ones that are closer to ground zero, so to speak, which makes perfect sense because the further away from the original writings a particular manuscript may be, uh, the more likelihood that human error could come into play. One other really important element that, that's a part of the textual criticism uh, field is whenever they are comparing copies of copies within the same region. So for example, I send a letter to my friend in Philly, and then he makes a copy of it and sends it to a buddy of his in Boston. And then his friend in Boston makes a copy of a copy of a copy, and he ends up sending those copies to other places. Let's say he sends one to Saskatchewan, Canada. 
And then uh, a friend of his uh, makes 20 copies and distributes it all around different parts of Saskatchewan. And all the people who live in Saskatchewan, they continually make copies of copies and they pass it down through the generation. Now let's fast forward to the year 2216, right? It's been 200 years since I wrote the letter. And there are textual uh, critics that are examining the manuscripts, the copies of copies of this letter that I wrote. And they're, and they're discovering in Saskatchewan a bunch of different versions of the letter. Let's say they have got three copies of the copies in front of them. They've got one copy, let's say from the year 2056, right? That would be 40 years old, right? The original was written in 2016, 40 years later, 2056, there's a copy made in Saskatchewan. They discover this one in 2216. They go, okay, the first one we're looking at is 40 years old. Then they find another one from the year 2116. It's 100 years old, right? They say, okay, so we've got one manuscript that is 40 years old. We've got another one that is 100 years old. And they go, okay, we have this third one, let's say that's from 2156. They go, that one's a 140 years old. Okay, so they've got these three manuscripts in front of them that are three different ages, three different copies of copies. They go 2056, 2116, 2156. How do they know whether or not the transmission was accurate? Like, how do they know that the copies of copies being made as they're being written by hand are actually being done accurately? Well, it's really quite simple. You can just look at them from the different ages and go, well, this one's from 2056. Let's compare it to the one that's 2116. Yeah, it's pretty much the same. Over the course of, you know, 60 years, they didn't change much. And then they made another copy, you know, 40 years later, 2156. Yeah, it looks like it doesn't change much. Like, you can compare manuscripts. So if you find a manuscript, you know, from the year 900 AD that happens to match scripts from, you know, the year 200 BC, you can then trust the transmission. You could say, hey, we're finding manuscripts that are really early and we're comparing them to manuscripts that are later and older or that are younger. And we're able to see that as the copies were made in different stages over the course of the generations, they didn't change much. And really, in most cases, they didn't change at all. Well, is this what we see with the Bible? Absolutely, yes. Okay, let's get away from my contemporary fantasy illustrations and metaphors. And let's now just kind of stick to the historical elements that, that are pertinent to the conversation. Every single time that we find, you know, new manuscripts. There are new archaeological discoveries. I say we, meaning, obviously, you know, humanity as a whole. Whenever there are new manuscripts that are discovered, we find something incredibly encouraging for those of us that do believe that the Bible is the authoritative Word of God. Over and over and over again, when we make new archaeological discoveries, we continually find new manuscripts, new copies of copies, and new fragments of manuscripts that actually uh, are actually pointing to the fact that the transmission of the scriptures over the years has actually been done incredibly accurately. And so this is what scholars do. They, they find these manuscripts, these copies of copies from all over the world, and they piece them together like, like a detective reconstructing what they believe the original uh, authors wrote. And we don't just do this with the Bible. We do this with every work from antiquity. Pretty much anything up until the invention of the print press, you know, uh, pretty much everything up to the 14 and 1500s is reconstructed on manuscripts from you know some variation of of papyrus or parchment, whether that be an early version of paper, whether that it be animal skin that was often used. What, what archaeologists, historians, and scholars are often doing is collecting manuscripts and reconstructing what the original author probably 
wrote. And so whether that be the history that proves that Julius Caesar exists, that's based on manuscripts, right? We, we find these documents that mention this guy, Julius Caesar, and then historians kind of reconstruct whether or not this guy, Julius Caesar, actually existed. Alexander the Great, whether that be the 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 re, you know the reconstruction of Homer's Iliad or, or the Odyssey, uh, or all different writings from Aristotle or Plato or, or a variety of other philosophers from the Greek world, a variety of historical things from the Roman Empire, from ancient Egypt, from ancient Babylon. Like everything we discover from history in many cases is because we have found documents, manuscripts, fragments of manuscripts that are, you know, in, in many cases, hundreds, if not thousands of years from the time that the original writings were written. But, but scholars then piece all this together like a detective and they reconstruct what did the original writer actually say. Like, we don't have any actual writings from Aristotle. There's nothing in the world today that exists that Aristotle himself actually wrote. How do we know that Aristotle even existed? How do we know that he actually said the things that we, we think he said, that we believe he said? Well, it's because there have been documents that quoted Aristotle and documents that we've discovered that, again, manuscripts, copies of copies throughout the centuries, and scholars have reconstructed them to know, okay, what, what, is it, what likely happened? And what is, what is likely that Aristotle actually stated? What did he actually say? Let's kind of piece it back together and, and then kind of come up with a final product. And this is what scholars and textual critics do. They examine manuscripts. And the world of academia trusts these guys. We go, okay, let's trust them to, to investigate the manuscripts and see what they come up with. So what have they come up with, right? If we're going to trust uh, scholars, historians, archaeologists, and textual critics uh, to really examine the plethora of manuscripts, the, the millions of manuscripts that we've discovered around the world, you know, to, to reconstruct the, the, the ancient world, you know, what are the types of things they've come up with? And how does the Bible compare to other works from antiquity? Let's compare what scholars and historians and archaeologists have discovered about other works of literature, and let's see what scholars and archaeologists have found about the Bible. Or let's start with some Roman history. Uh, the the Roman Empire, obviously a, a, a huge part of world history in, in so many different ways, and no doubt biblical history impacted by uh, the Roman world. And so I've already alluded to it. Let's, let's touch on the Roman Empire. Um, how do we know things that took place in the Roman Empire? Uh, let's take, for example, uh, see the Caesar's Gaelic Wars. These are wars that are often covered and often talked about in history classes. Uh, we have approximately 10 quality manuscripts to uh, to make mention of the fact that these wars actually took place. We believe these wars took place because we have found copies of copies that have documented these wars. And there's about 10 of them that we have. So that's pretty strong in the minds of a lot of textual critics. Um, the earliest manuscript that we can find is 900 years after the fact. So the wars take place. They are documented by people who live in that time frame. And then they pass those on, and over time, people make copies of copies of copies of the historical documentation. And eventually, many of those manuscripts get lost. And so the ones that remain from the early word, there's only, there's only about 10 of them, and the earliest one is about 900 years after the fact. So from the time the Gaelic Wars take place to the time that we have some evidence for them, there's about 900 years. Well, is it possible that the, that the events were changed or altered or manipulated as they were being written down over the course of 900 years? Well, certainly it's possible. But what do textual critics do? They look at these manuscripts, they look at 
some archaeological evidence if they can find any. And again, they try to, like a detective, reconstruct what happened. But but the the, the primary uh, evidences for the C, for the for the Gaelic Wars of Caesar are ten manuscripts, nine hundred years after the fact. Scholars across the board agree that that is enough evidence to believe that uh, that those wars actually did take place. That is a matter of history. Uh, let's go to the next guy. How about a guy named Tacitus? He wrote the the annals um, that that give us a lot about uh, Roman history. What are uh, you know what are some of the evidences that this guy Tacitus did indeed exist and he did write a lot about the Roman Empire? In fact, we gain a lot of knowledge uh, about the Roman Empire from this guy named Tacitus. Well, there are actually two quality reliable manuscripts for the annals of Tacitus. And the earliest one is about a thousand years after the fact, from the time that he wrote the annals about the Roman about Roman history to the time that we have the earliest copy of a copy, is about a thousand years. But again, across the board, historians have agreed that's that's good enough. That that's enough information. What about the Greek historian Herodotus, a very famous Greek historian? He is heavily relied upon by by many scholars. How do we know uh, that his writings are authentic? Well, for him, we have eight manuscripts, and the earliest manuscript we have is written 1,300 years after he wrote his originals, right? So that, again, the, the, the time lapse between his original writing and the earliest manuscript that we have available today is approximately 1,300 years. And again, across the board, scholars are agreeing, we believe that his writings are indeed authentic. How about Plato, right? Very famous Greek philosopher and writer. How do we know that the writings that we have written by Plato, the ones that we have today, were indeed actually written by him? How do we know that this guy actually did exist and that, that his writings haven't been corrupted or altered over the course of time? Well, scholars know that we have seven reliable manuscripts for Plato. And the earliest one was written approximately 1,200 years after Plato, Plato wrote the originals. Right? Again, seven manuscripts, the earliest one, 1,300 years after Plato lived. How about this guy named Aristotle, right? You've probably heard of Aristotle. How do we know this guy uh, actually existed and that, uh, that, you know, that, that, that his writings are, are indeed authentic? Well, uh, for Aristotle, we have 49 reliable manuscripts. Right? That is an absurd amount compared to what we just dialogued with the other ones, right? And the earliest manuscript we have for Aristotle is approximately 1,400 years after his life. But scholars across the board say that, that there's the evidence is overwhelming. Again, 49 manuscripts with the earliest being 1,400 years old, is considered very reliable. Suetonius, who the, the famous, you know, first and second century uh, Roman historian, uh, he, he's, again, very famous. A lot of what we know about the Roman world is based upon the writings uh, that he put together. His most famous work is, uh, is The Lives of the Twelve Caesars. And so um, the manuscripts we have from him, we have about 200 of them, and the earliest one is about 800 years after his life. And so again, scholars look at these numbers and say 200 manuscripts, you know, written within 800 years of his life is is very compelling evidence to show that there's no doubt a matter of history. How about Homer's Iliad? How do we know that this epic piece of Greek literature hasn't been corrupted or altered over the centuries? How do we know that, that this piece of writing is authentic? Well, we look at the manuscripts and we see with Homer's with Homer's Iliad we have 643 complete manuscripts, and we have uh, about 1,100 or so uh, 
partial manuscripts or fragments of manuscripts, you know, almost 1,700 or so manuscripts that show that, that it hasn't been altered. This is overwhelming. This is abundantly you know, much more evidence than any of the other ones I've mentioned so far. And even better, the, uh, the, the earliest manuscripts we have were written about 500 years after the original. This is very compelling. So I have spent the last several minutes giving you the manuscripts that we have to, to corroborate the authenticity of the writings from a variety of people from the ancient world, right? And most of these are in the, in the single digits or very low double digits. And, and again, as the, the, the most two, you know, um, Suetonius and Homer's Iliad are the ones that have the overwhelming evidence. How do these compare to the Old and New Testament. How does the Old Testament stack up? Let's talk about the Old Testament for a moment. The Old Testament um, has a bunch of manuscripts that we have uh, on planet Earth today. The, the largest collection and list was first put together by a guy named Benjamin uh, Kennicott. He's a British scholar in the 1700s. He published a, a list for Oxford. In the, in the 1700s, we had approximately 615 manuscripts. Um, right after him, a man by the name of uh, Giovanni de Rossi, he put together a, a list. He's a very famous Italian archaeologist. He put together a list saying that we had about 731 manuscripts. Now, that is way more than most of these. So if, if you're going to believe that, that some of these other people's writings haven't been corrupted, well, then you have to kind of believe that the Old Testament hasn't been corrupted. But since since those two guys put together their list, we've had two major discoveries for uh, for the Old Testament. One was the uh, the Cairo uh, Geniza. I may be pronouncing that wrong. I apologize. Uh, that, this was a discovery made in the late 1800s. About 300,000 manuscripts were found there, but they're not all biblical manuscripts. Um, there's about 10 to 11,000 either complete or fragments of manuscripts. Again, more than 10,000 manuscripts that show that the Old Testament has not been corrupted over the centuries from the ancient world until today. Then there was another discovery you may be familiar with, and I'm going to do a, a whole episode just on this topic, uh, the Dead Sea Scrolls. This was the, a, a monumental discovery in the 1940s. There were more than, uh, you know, it's like 700 manuscripts and fragments of manuscripts. Again, not all were biblical. Uh, about 200 of them were, uh, were biblical manuscripts, between two and 300 um, every single the book of the Old Testament was represented except the book of Esther, either either fragments of books or chunks of books. And the one that we found that was most compelling was a complete manuscript of the book of Isaiah from 200 BC. Kind of what I told you earlier that if you find multiple different manuscripts from different time, you can kind of compare them and to see how good the transmission has been, like how good has the copying been over the centuries. Well, if you look at our modern day book of Isaiah and you look at the book of Isaiah, that was from 200 BC, they are remarkably similar. Like there's like a handful of words that are different, literally a handful out of, a, a, out of this massive book by the prophet Isaiah, showing that over the last 22, 2300 years, the Bible has not been corrupted and not been changed whatsoever. I mean, it is a remarkable feat, a remarkable discovery to find these, these scrolls and be able to show that the Bible has indeed not been change over the course of time. So at, at current time, you know, we have uh, several, we have over 10,000 uh, Old Testament manuscripts, several hundred complete manuscripts. Again, better than most of the other works from antiquity. Now let's look at the New Testament. And this is where we find the evidence that blows away 
all other evidence for any other writings from antiquity. As of the recording of this episode, there are currently more than 5,700 New Testament manuscripts from all over Europe, uh, the Middle East, and Northern Africa that we've discovered over the course of time. Uh, literally almost 6,000 manuscripts that have been written. And you look at the complete manuscripts of the complete New Testament, the earliest ones are a, you know, right about early port, the early part of the 4th century, which would meaning Jesus lived in the middle part of the first century, the early part of the first century. That's less than 300 years from the time we have a complete manuscript of the New Testament. Between that and the life of Jesus, it's less than 300 years. We also have uh, partial manuscripts, parts of books and fragments that are as close to the year 125 AD, which that's less than 100 years within the life of Jesus. Let's recap. Plato... Seven copies of manuscripts. The earliest is 750. Jesus, 5,700. The earliest fragment is within 100 years, right? Like, let's recap again with, uh, with uh, Aristotle. Aristotle has 49 manuscripts to document uh, his life and writings. The earliest is 1,400 years after he lived. Jesus, 5,700 within 100 years. I say this all the time. The evidence that, that the New Testament is authentic and it hasn't been changed is overwhelming. And the evidence for Jesus having been a real man who lived, died, and rose from the dead is substantial. Like, if you're going to believe that Julius Caesar existed, then you got to believe that Jesus rose from the dead. Like, if you're going to believe that the Roman Empire uh, existed, then you got to believe that Jesus rose from the dead. If you're going to believe that the works of Aristotle are authentic, then you got to believe that the, that the New Testament is authentic. Like, the evidence for Jesus and the authenticity of the New Testament far outweighs, without even competition, the, the evidence of the authenticity of any other writings from antiquity. Listen, if you believe that Julius Caesar existed, then you got to believe that Jesus rose from the dead. Like, th that's what the evidence points to. Now, if you want to reject Jesus, uh, the resurrection of Jesus, and you want to reject the authenticity of any other writings from historians, that's fine. That's consistent. But if you choose to embrace all of the other works from antiquity, whether it be Plato or Aristotle or Tacitus or the you know the, the writings about the uh, Caesar's Gaelic Wars, like if you want to embrace any of the authenticity of those writings, but you want to reject the authenticity of the New Testament, then friends, you're being inconsistent. Quite honestly, you're being a hypocrite. Like, it's absolutely inconsistent to reject the, the authenticity of the New Testament, but embrace the authenticity of any other works from antiquity. Because again, the, the evidence that the New Testament is authentic and compared to those other works is simply overwhelming, right? The, these other ones have manuscripts that are two, three, ten, you know, b manuscripts and fragments. The New Testament, over 5,700. Many of these people, uh, you know, their, their manuscripts that mention them in dialogue or that, that, that document their life, the earliest manuscripts are you know, close a thousand years after within the life of Jesus or about the life of Jesus, you know, within a few hundred years, we have complete reliable manuscripts. It is overwhelming. The authenticity of the New Testament is something that absolutely can be and should be trusted by every rational and objective observer.
This topic is extremely important because if we're going to claim that the Bible is authoritative, then we have to be able to authenticate it, right? If we can't authenticate the writings in the Old and New Testament, then we certainly cannot claim that it is the authoritative word of God. However, we are able to authenticate the Bible and we're able to do it on a scale that far outweighs any other work from antiquity. This ought to give those of us who are believers incredible confidence in the authenticity and the reliability of the Word of God. Before I let you go, let me give you a few uh, quick resources you can check out. Uh, in the previous episode, I mentioned three resources that I would recommend again. Uh, one, the first one was How We Got the Bible by Timothy Paul Jones. This really is a must-read, in my opinion, for, for all believers. It's super simple. Uh, Timothy Paul Jones does a great job of really just kind of outlying um, how we accumulated the scriptures and how we know they're reliable. Uh, I also mentioned a book called The Canon of Scripture uh, by F.F. F. Bruce, and I mentioned The Baker Encyclopedia of Christian Apologetics by Norman Geisler. I want to give you uh, two other books by F.F. F. Bruce that I think are really, really good that specifically deal with manuscripts and textual criticism. Uh, the first one is called The New Testament Documents. Are they reliable? Again, that's by F.F. F. Bruce. Really great book. And then another one is called The Books and the Parchments, also by by F.F. Bruce. Check those out. They really dialogue about the, the those books, you know, really dialogue about the, uh, the, the, the text, the fragments, the manuscripts, things that we have, and how we're able to reconstruct what the original authors wrote. And then one other book I'll mention, this is if you're, if you're really nerdy like me, like this is not something I would recommend to most people, uh, but if you're someone that really wants to get into the nitty gritty, you really want to get into some of the uh, deep dive elements of, of textual criticism, uh, a book called The Text of the New Testament by Bruce Metzger. Uh, he wrote this, uh, the original edition, uh, several decades ago, uh, several decades before he passed, and there's been several editions since then. Uh, Bruce Metzger is is really considered the greatest, or if not the greatest, one of the greatest New Testament scholars of the contemporary era. Um, his writings are often used as the textbooks in college courses uh, at the graduate level in a lot of seminaries uh, around the you know around the the country. He was a longtime professor at Princeton Theological Seminary. Really brilliant man, great work. Um, so if you're really nerdy like me, you can get into some of his stuff. Uh, his kind of preeminent work or the kind of his most popular work, the text of the New Testament, uh, but he's written like 50 plus books. And so you can just go on Amazon and you can type in his name and a bunch of his stuff will come up. If you want the specific textbook that I've gone through and that I've checked out, uh, you can go to the show notes for this episode and I'll have a link uh, you know, to the to the exact spot on Amazon where you can find it because it's kind of, kind of tough to find on Amazon. So head over to our website. You can actually do that with all the books I've recommended. You can go to our website. Uh, theologyfortherestofus.com. Look at the show notes for this episode, uh, episode 145, and you'll see several books there that I'm recommending, all the ones I've mentioned here. You can click on that. That takes you right over to the page in Amazon where you can pick up uh, a copy of any one of those books. Hey, thanks for listening to this episode of the podcast. I know it's gone super long, and I know several of the last few episodes have gone long. I just wanted to make sure you had all the info that you needed as well as the additional resources that you could check out. If you have any questions about this episode, or if you have a topic or question that's completely unrelated and you want me to address that in a future episode of the podcast, I'd love to hear from you. Shoot me an email. The address is heyortiz at theologyfortherestofus.com. That's H-E-Y-O-R-T-I-Z at theologyfortherestofus.com. I'm Kenny Ortiz, and this has been Theology for the Rest of Us.